Today's podcast brought to you by Elders and Reinegard by Zoetis. Hello, I'm Kerry Lunigan. Welcome to The Weekly Grill. Today's guest marks a return to the microphone of one of Australia's most respected practitioners of the art of vertical integration. He's a producer, a lot feeder, a wholesaler and an exporter. Welcome back, Terry Nolan. You're again on The Grill for Beef Central. Morning, Terry. How are you? Terry, a, a general question first up. The beef industry, where do you see it at present? Is it heading further south even or have we in fact seen the bottom? Oh, good question, Kerry. Everyone has an opinion and um, most of us don't really know. As you know, the beef industry has its own volatilities and whether it's weather, whether it's market technical market access issues, whether it's you know, COVID, you just don't know. On a broad scale, yes, the market has corrected. I don't think we've seen the last of the correction only because of the value or the volume of beef in markets around the world. So um, a lot of people think we're at the bottom. My personal opinion would be that we have a little further to go. But having said that, I think we will start to see recovery in the um, the last quarter. So I think this next quarter or the current quarter we're in might be the worst and uh, continue to ease through August and September. Hopefully there's a break in the spring rains and hopefully we have avoid the dreaded El Nino. If we get the El Nino across Australia, yes, it could get worse. But if we get some spring rain, I would like to think there's some strengthening November, December and through the summer months. But it all depends on the weather. The market access problems will sort themselves out as um, I think the world still needs protein. So I know that's a um, bit of a foot either side of the fence. But um, that's as I see it. Terry, Australia, as you know, Australia relies so heavily on exports to sustain the beef industry. How tough is it out there right now in export land? Oh, I think it speaks for itself. If you're in the trade and um, you see the volume of meat that's normally destined for export markets that's been dumped back domestically, then that's a, uh, a real issue. And it's probably affecting, this sounds a bit strange, Kerry, but it's affecting the well-developed supply chains uh, more than it is the hand-to-mouth operator. If you've got cattle on feed and in the system and you put them on feed 100 days ago and you've probably had fairly dear cattle, you've got probably increased grain prices in that period, those cattle owe you a lot of money. And if you're locked into that situation, as, as I say, good supply chains are, then you're really bleeding and uh, processing and, and selling that into the market now. Conversely, if you're a hand-to-mouth operator and you're buying out of the uh, direct from the farmer off the paddock, I guess you'd probably be doing very well. You'd be could be cashing into it to an extent now. So it's a uh, like a split market. The people with well-developed supply chains, which everybody encourages, they're doing it tougher than the more hand-to-mouth type operator who's capitalising on a on, a, on an eas- easing cattle market. It really annoys me when people sort of say, oh, why is the meat cheaper in the shops? Like the meat doesn't go up the day the cattle goes up and the meat retail price doesn't come back the day the first sale yard price drops. And you've got to allow four or five month lead time in fairness to get that product through the supply chain. So it's a, it's a real dichotomy of operations there and people who think they've 
done the right thing with a good long supply chain, it just takes longer to work through. So it's a uh, the processing sector is split in two at the moment: the hand-to-mouth operator and the sophisticated supply chain. And I hate to say it, but the hand-to-mouth operator is probably doing a bit better. One particular market I want to mention, and I'm told there's a lot of stuff in storage up there, is China, which was once a massive market for quality beef. Their overall economy is definitely struggling. Is, is any China revival still a long way off? No, it, it's been well documented, Kerry. Um, you know, there's talks of seventy to 80,000 tonnes of meat sitting on the ports up in China. You might recall a few months ago, there was a BSE scare in Brazil, and um, whilst I don't go to China, our plant doesn't go to China, the reports have it that uh, a lot of that meat was continued to be shipped from Brazil without a home, and um, it's sort of piled up on the wharves over there, and they haven't yet broken a solution. So one thing about meat, it's a perishable, and you think you can freeze it and hold it forever, but the cash flow starts to eat away at you, the demurrage of port costs eats away at you, and, um, you know, when you know you've got distressed cargo, sometimes you don't do anything for a deal just to clear it. Yeah. And um, I think that you'd have to class that 70-odd thousand tonne as almost distressed cargo that will pour into the China market at vastly reduced rates. That'll pull down rates for other products. And I know your question's about the Chinese economy. Yes, it is faltering, but I'm not qualified Say, oh, I'm only saying what I read yeah. in the paper, the same as everybody else. I do think that if the economy is faltering, that'll just make them uh, more sharp in their negotiation to buy any backlog at a, at a reduced rate. So, yeah, there's a few um, winds of change blowing at the moment, yeah. and um, it, it, it'll all pan out. We, we just know we've been in a volatile cyclical industry and don't see that changing in the next couple of years, yeah. Let's pause for a moment. Uh, after the break, we'll talk to Terry Nolan about what happened to his business in the floods or after the floods of 2022. Breathe easy with Rhinogard, the only single-dose intranasal vaccine for control of IBR in your cattle. Get in control of bovine respiratory disease, that's BRD, before it begins. Just deliver a single intranasal spray of Rhinogard for rapid IBR control and add a single dose of Bovishield MH1 for protection against pneumonia. For rapid protection against MH and IBR in your weaners and pre-feedlot cattle, breathe easy with Bovishield and Rhinogard. Available from your local vet today. For over 180 years, Elders has proudly been supporting Australian livestock producers. Elders supports your business across the production cycle with more than 350 livestock agents, access to specialist livestock advice and auction services. Draw on our established relationships to buy and sell commercial and stud livestock across domestic and international markets. Enjoy Del Credere guaranteed payments when you sell with Elders. Livestock funding also available subject to approval. Elders for Australian agriculture. Welcome back. You're on the grill for Beef Central, and our guest today is Terry Nolan. Let's uh, visit your operation at Gympie, Terry. First, the uh, pandemic 2020-21 and onwards, and then a catastrophe in early 2022. Give us a word picture of what happened at that time, February 2022. Well, I might go back to the pandemic, 
Kerry to sure, start. Sure. Um, we thought that we had put in all the provisions we had to in February 2020. We locked out anyone from our plant that wasn't essential. So it was virtually only staff coming on board. We set up a bit of a temporary monitoring station um, at our gate and everyone has their temperature done every day and quizzed about illnesses. Here we are three years later, three and a half years later, we're still doing that. What was a, a temporary um, structure? It's a mark here, if you like. It was a, a temporary tent put up to monitor people. Three years later, we're still using it. So by and large, we've kept the COVID out of our plant. You might have heard stories about plants in Victoria that shut for two and three weeks. We sort of, as they say, went hard and went early, and we just stopped everyone, stopped visitors. Our Japanese clients like to visit and you know, our Korean clients like to visit. We said, no, sorry, you can't come on site. And we did that very early, probably a bit ahead of the game. The result of that was that at the peak of the pandemic for us, we had 15 people off with COVID. You know, I've seen plants that have had 50% of their staff off with COVID. It, it virtually didn't touch us, uh, if I can say it that way. Yeah. But what did happen, we rely on a whole lot of um, people on those working holiday visas. You know, people refer to them as backpackers. I sometimes think that's the meaning. But we had about 113 working holiday visas, all of which disappeared within about three months of the COVID. So the real effect of COVID for us was the exodus of a lot of our staff. That sort of set us back quite a bit. So from doing 600 cattle a day, we tapered back to about 400 cattle a day. And so it was, a, you can say, a third loss of production. Along with that, there's the Bruce Highway is going past our plant and the Bruce Highway has resumed a lot of our land. And... Um, we have access all weather uh, to our site, but in their wisdom, our front gate was lowered about 1.2 metres, the road outside our front gate. So we could get to the road, but we had water with a straight drop-off into a, into a, a moat, we call it, <laughs> and we couldn't cross, the, couldn't cross the moat. So we had trouble evacuating our site uh, because of the highway construction outside our front gate. That causes quite a bit of damage. You know, it was quite heartbreaking, really, that we had some motors down in our byproducts area. You know, in large floods gets inundated. We pulled out massive motors out of there and had them all sitting on pallets waiting to load out, but couldn't get out our front gate. And it was oh, yeah, heartbreaking when you see that you've yeah. done all your evacuation, you followed your flood plan, you've got everything out, but here it is left on the yeah, highest part yeah. of the property. Yeah, this was February last year. Yeah, February 22, yeah. Tropical cyclone, Seth, and i just give some figures to our listeners. 400 millimetres of rain in and around Gympie in 48 hours. That's 64 inches, thank you, in the old scale. The Mary River, the Mary River peaked at 22.8 metres, which was meaningless by itself, but we realised that this was the highest level of the river at that place since 1893. 3,600 homes have flooded in and around Gympie. Just absolutely extraordinary damage. What sort of damage resulted in and around your meatworks? We did have, we, at the peak of it, we ended up with some water into our chillers. And um, so we had to condemn several hundred bodies of grain-fed beef, which um, we just loaded on a truck and sent to bushes. And that was sort of heartbreaking, seeing these beautiful bodies of beef going in down to render. 
and we pulled out quite a few motors and um, it was um, interesting, Kerry. I was I actually had a week's leave that week and I was down at Malulabar at the Sunshine Coast and I suffered from what they call FOMO, the fear of missing out and I was yeah. trying to get home and my wife, I, I tried several paths and got cut everywhere. My wife said, don't you dare drive home, Terry, you'll get washed away in the in the flood water. Um, so I, I stayed put there until Sunday morning and um, it turned out to be wise in hindsight. In fact, we lost one of our key staff members in the flood trying to get home through running water and yeah. the old, uh, if it's flooded, forget it. So yeah. It rings very true with all yeah. us here. So that was a, a bit of a emotional trauma that our team had to deal with losing one of their team leaders. Indeed. Um, How many of your workers were actually laid off there? Uh, no, no one was laid off, um, Kerry. What we did, and I, I just, because I was trying to get back to help, I actually hired a helicopter that picked me up from Maroochydore um, Airport and dropped me on the tarmac out in front of our coal store where our trucks turn around. Um, yeah. It was amazing. I flew up in 14 minutes from Maroochydore. I thought, why did I do this earlier? Yeah. But of course, you couldn't because the helicopters won't fly in the rain. Yeah. So you had to wait for the rain to stop. But anyway, we got here. We, we called a bit of a meeting to rally the troops and and myself and my brothers, Michael and Tony, were there. And I said to the guys, I said, this is the worst we've ever been. We've got to have the first beast rolling out of the knocking box on Friday morning. That was our goal, to try and get it uh, up and running in five days from Monday morning to Friday morning. We worked around the clock. The roads still weren't open at this stage, and we were ferrying people in by helicopter three at a time from the Gympie showgrounds, people on the south side, because the Mary River was cut, the... There was still water in the main street, but we'd started our um, our recovery process. Did one of those sort of um, stirring speeches. Come on, guys, we've got to be going by Friday. My brother Tony he said, you're freaking mad. He said, we've got <laughs> weeks' worth of damage here to prepare. We can't be going. Yeah. And uh, he, he was right. We weren't going by um, Friday, but we did roll the first body out of the knocking box on Monday morning, just seven days after. You know, we just can't pay homage enough to our uh, staff yeah. that came in. I still a bit emotional thinking about it, Kerry. It was just a, um, yeah. it was just, just amazing what people do. Um, so no, it, was, it was quite interesting. So yeah. um, that just set us back a little bit. A little but, bit. Um, no, yeah. So but, but March, April 2022, you're recovering, rebuilding and refocusing. Is, I've got to move on here because is, was this when you started to get the idea of how to resolve the ongoing employment issues with your regional abattoir, not only to attract workers but to train and keep them? That's a good question. Um, we were thinking about getting people in on visas and visas are very hard to to yeah. progress through immigration these days. And, um, yeah, probably 12 months or six months prior to that, we'd made first sounds about how we'd do that. And I must pay homage to um, David Littleproud, the minister of the time. He, he knew of the crisis in regional Queensland for any people. And people say labour crisis. I hate saying that. But they're people first and foremost. What they do is um, they're just not labourers, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, so through the PALM scheme, the Pacific Australia Labor Mobility Scheme, yeah. they'd merged a few of those short-term programs into one, and um, all under PALM now. And we had made applications to get people in, and it was sort of a staged process, our mobilisation. We actually had our first group 
arrive on the 7th of July. And that was like a breath of fresh air having people. Now, they were untrained people, never used a knife in you know, in an industrial sense in their life and some hadn't seen livestock. And um, I've got to tell you, they, we've just gone our first anniversary, so 12 months here. We were so hesitant in the early days. We hadn't done this before. It was all new to us. As you know, there's a housing crisis in southeast Queensland. In, in fact, there's a housing crisis right across the country. So we had to set about buying houses and we stumbled upon a community retreat that Hachikoi Education and Accommodation Centre. It was originally set up by um, Christian Outreach Group. That's uh, the property Sorry. south of Gympie. I, look, it's yeah, a bit yeah. of a landmark. You go past there, there's always, I always remember that sign on the way to the Gympie muster, in fact. Yeah. That, that's it, yeah. It's Hachikoi, yeah. yeah. It's a lovely spot down there. It came on the market and there's 100 acres there with, well, they had about 140 residents, but, you know, we reduced that. There was four people per room, and they're, they're en-suited rooms. That we just thought that two people per room was more comfortable. And um, so, you know, there's not quite 100 beds down there. So um, but, but it came on the market. We purchased it, and then six days later, we had our first mobilisation from Tonga arrive. Yeah. So it was sort of, yeah, very fast-moving sequence of events. And... Um, I've got to say, because we're hesitant, we only signed the people up for a three-year term. You could do four-year terms. Because we didn't know how it would work out, we did them for a three-year term. But since that time, we've had two more mobilisations, one of 30 and one of 45 people. In uh, The 30 was October 22, and the, and the last one was in February this year. So we've now had a 115 people brought from Tonga to Australia. All unskilled. Yeah, that did, that didn't worry us too much. We're a supervising registered training organisation, so we could train them. We had our problems. People were homesick. Some got some serious illness and wanted to return home. Some came here pregnant and wanted to return home to live with their family. There's bereavements in the family. So, and and but listen, we did have a couple that just weren't suitable. As of the 115, we still have 100 people here today. And that's very positive. And, um, you know, when I say we've bought the Touchy Koi Centre, we've also bought 13 houses. So this seems ridiculous, but we now have 180 beds. When you look at all the houses in Touchy Koi, we can accommodate 180 of our staff, something that would have been completely unheard of five years ago, if you ask me. So after the catastrophe of the flood, you were prepared to incentivise workers from Tonga, train them, accommodate them as well so you can Absolutely. keep your business going it's remarkable Absolutely, and we just think it's the most amazing program yeah. um, sure you've got to understand there's cultural differences and all that sort of thing and there is no skills it takes a long time to train people but um, I think we've had 59 sign up for 32 qualifications we've had uh, 10 of those people already complete that within the 12 month period Yeah. So it's been a it's been a real win win. We look to be signing up another uh, twenty in the next three or four weeks. We never sign anyone to a training certificate or, or commence a training certificate until we've done three months to see if they have the right skills and knowledge and motivation. Yeah. And after their three month probationary period, we we put them onto um, certificate training. And a lot of these ones that have completed their cert two have now signed up to a cert three. 
I'm sorry if I go on, I'm a bit passionate about this, Kerry, but we've, we've even lost some of our MSA graders. As you know, we do a all-grain-fed production, and um, we like to um, train graders, and we've trained a lot of graders over the years. We had um, three young ladies actually from Tonga, quite well-educated in Tonga, and um, we got them through, got Osmeet to do a training course, put them through, and they've just been a marvellous value-adding part of our business that, that we've got people who 12 months ago hadn't touched meat, but they passed yeah. all their meat science and their grading things and they've got a, a portable qualification. You know, I just can't emphasise the, the value of training in this industry. Yeah. Most things we can train and be very good. Why Tongans uh, specifically, Terry? Why not uh, Filipinos? <laughs> There's a good uh, spread of English, a command of English, or, or maybe other Polynesians, but why Tongans? Um, listen, um, we had some Vietnamese people who have been with us for over 15 years, 18 years actually, uh, 2005, six first came in, and some of these people are still with us. And we wanted to bring Vietnamese people because it was that program was so successful. Unfortunately, Vietnam wasn't part of the Palm Scheme. I think there is a bilateral agreement to say that there might be a small number come from Vietnam eventually, and we'd encourage the government to do that. But then we looked at the Pacific, and there was a lot of people coming out of Samoa, Cook Islands, um, all those places. But Tonga had been in shutdown, and no one had come from there. And it was more gut feel than anything, I guess. We thought if no one's come out of there for two years as part of the program, perhaps there's a bigger pool of people to draw from. And it was as simple as that. And um, now that we've done that, we're, we're very happy. In fact, just last week, two of our staff have been back over in Tonga looking to recruit for later on this year. So we'll have a fourth mobilisation. Um, you shouldn't underestimate the skill of some of these people. We have the National Referee Soccer Coach in the boning room. We have a, a lady that worked in um, customs in immigration, uh, working here, university educated. Um, one young lady, her father was the um, uh, the ambassador from Tonga to the US and is a you know, US university educated. So it, it, there is some amazing people amongst them and uh, amazing stories of hardship. And, and uh, I'm just so overjoyed with the the uh, success of our program. And I assume that the staffing number increases allowed an expansion. How many cattle are you pushing through each week? And are you anywhere near back to pre-flood levels? Well, pre-pandemic, we were doing 600. And then we did, around the flood time, um, because some equipment wasn't fully operational, um, we did get down to about 300, 280 or 300 a day. We just sort of think, you know, like last week we did 490 a day. So we're in the sort of 450s or 490s. You do what you can do. Yeah. Um, some days are better than others. Depends on the class of stock, the size of stock and all that. But, yeah, we're, we're sort of doing over 450 every day and some days touching 500. So, yeah. But it takes a long time to get unskilled people up to the skill required. But uh, having said that, I think it's a good investment. And, and what we've learned from our first intake, we should have signed them all up to four years because you virtually spend the first 12 months training and hopefully year two, three, and four, you get some return on your training investment. Yeah. Can I say, Terry, it's a remarkable story, but I have to also say that both sides of politics over recent years have promised plenty and appear to have delivered little in terms of fixing the labour issue for business in regional and rural areas. 
but you've gone out and done it yourself. Is there anything governments might or could do in this area? Um, tax, uh, tax, I, tax, I, tax breaks for in isolated areas, for example. That's one point that's been made. Yeah, it, it, it's a it's a double edged sword, Kerry. There is no doubt there has been some mistreatment of people, and you can and and that mistreatment of um, visa holders and. And that, that's been happening for years and, you know, people, you've got to respect people and got to respect their rights and treat them fairly and, and, and that's the basis we came from. I don't know how, how governments can organise individual companies' ethics, if you know what I mean, or, or moral standings. Yeah. Um, people that want to cheat the system will always cheat the system and they'll always make it hard for the ones that want to do the right thing. So in fairness to government, some people have exploited other people in the past. If everyone had a strong moral compass and did the right thing and don't exploit people, I think government regulations would be easier. You know, we're very conscious that we want to treat our team members as family. We want to make them fit in and we've provided beautiful accommodation. We even went out and purchased a bus to bring people from Tachikoya to Gympie and run that three times of a morning and three times of an afternoon. So... Um, I, I guess yeah, we're all eager to criticise government, but the real issue starts when you look in the mirror and say, are you going to do the right thing or are you going to try and um, do something a bit sneaky or a bit unethical, if you know what I mean? And I'm also guessing that they might have, the Tongans might have put some hybrid vigour into the local rugby team. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. We've got a few playing football. Yeah. In fact, one, one of the guys that came out on the first um, and deployment, first mobilisation, he was signed up to the Auckland Warriors and um, voided his contract, but he went home to Tonga for Christmas yeah. and then couldn't get back out in the start of 20. So, yeah, we've got some quite talented sportsmen amongst them. <laughs> we've got some quite well-educated people. And, um, and, and and by and large, they're just a really good, happy group. And, um, you know, some days they're down the lunchroom and they're singing a bit of a song and, song and, and you hear lots, lots of laughter and yeah. very appreciative of, of having a... Um, having a job, uh, and I don't want to bore your listeners, Kerry, but I said to this one fellow, who's a TV producer over there, and uh, I said, did you bring any of your you know, cameras and things with you? You might be able to shoot a bit of video to send home. No, Terry, he said, um, you didn't hear about the tsunami. He said, that was terrible. Remember the underwater volcano? Yes. Like, caused the big tsunami yeah. in Tonga? He said, we ran for the hills, but we watched the waves come in and smash our houses to pieces. And then he said the real depressing part was seeing it all sucked out to sea. So yeah. they've had their own hardship as well, you know what I mean? So we just sort of feel a bit privileged that we can give them an opportunity. And the people here sending money home. One person who's bought their family two cars, he sent money home to buy a car in Tonga and building houses for their family back in Tonga. And, and until you get immersed in it, you don't really appreciate it as a lady here, I think she's a two, a four, a five and an 11-year-old back in Tonga staying with her, grandpa, with her parents, their grandparents, or she comes out here to earn money to send back to the family. So it's been some remarkable stories there and we did a roughly 50-50 split on males and females, have some couples and um, some people have moved out into their own accommodation, which is good. They want a bit of self-sufficiency. So yeah. now it's been a, a real education, a real a real life-changing experience for for me personally, but also for the business, turning the business around from what was pretty hard times. Sounds a great story. We could talk more about it, but we must move on to a couple of other issues. Uh, given the state of the world at present, uh, what 
plans do uh, does your company have in the world of carbon emissions, uh, the issue for the broader beef industry and certainly one for processors as well as producers? I want to answer that a bit in- indirectly, Terry. Frugality or we're a wasteful society. Humans are terribly wasteful. And whether it's leaving the tap running or, or whatever, consuming cardboard single package food items or whatever, we've worked very hard over the years to reduce our footprint. We have benchmarked through AMPC, that's the R&D body of the processors. We know on benchmarking rules, we're in the lowest quartile for energy usage, you know, power, gas and all those sorts of things. And uh, we know we're in the lowest quartile for litres of water used per kilo of carcass weight. And so we have benchmarked across the processing sector and send you a bit of report with the normal um, dial, if you like, and um, the bads over on the right, like the fire danger warning in red and the and the, the greens over on the left. And we're virtually sitting as far extreme left as you can. So I think we're one of the most efficient plants for both energy costs, water costs, and things like that. So it, it is not something you start now because carbon's the flavour of the month. 20 years ago, we stopped washing carcasses. Um, our view was if you don't put dirt on the carcass, you don't have to wash it off. If we do have some um, contamination, we trim it off. So we're one of the few plants that has no carcass wash. That immediately eliminates a lot of water. It helps preserve meat li- uh, uh, shelf life and all those sorts of things. So yeah, it, it's been a, a slow road uh, for us over many, many years. It's not something we just jump onto now because it's the flavour of the month. I think as a society, we're very wasteful. And um, if we could all consume a little less and waste a little less, I think we'd all be better off. So, yeah, we've read the um, Beef Sustainability Program. We uh, aspire to those goals within there. We've benchmarked our industry uh, against our industry peers. Um, We know we're doing very, very well in that area. We've read the, the RMAC carbon neutral 2030 type proposals and we're we're conscious but we're not we're trying to make it part of our business rather than something new we've just done because we're incentivized to do it that makes sense yes it does terry and i'm not surprised and more lateral thinking from you terry nolan producer lot feeder processor exporter and obviously given your last 18 months or so a bloke up for a challenge congratulations outstanding effort across the board terry and thanks so much for joining us on the grill for beef central Thank you very much, Kerry. Glad to be back. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today. If you have a question or topic you'd like discussed on The Weekly Grill, email theweeklygrill at beefcentral.com. Until next time, I'm Kerry Lonigan and this is The Weekly Grill brought to you by Elders and Reinegard by Zoetis. Mm-hmm.